everybody, welcome to Hit Rewind. This episode, we are jumping into the movies of 1995. I'm your host, Michael, and Jacob's on the other side. Hey, hey. All right, so we are starting off with five films. This year is going to be a little bit bigger than the last couple. I, I tried keeping it down to five episodes, but it's just not going to happen. I got six, and I was looking at 1996, and holy shit, I might have like eight episodes. It's another big year. Um, so most of the stuff we usually do is, you know, comedy and stuff like that. So we usually kind of save that towards the end. So we are starting off with what movie? Well, I want to get the action stuff out of the way. Uh, let's go with Quick and the Dead. All right. Uh, what's funny is, uh, the two action movies I saw in theaters. I didn't see the other ones in theaters. Um, I... I wish they would pull back a little bit from the Sam Raimi camera action. It's kind of annoying now. I get why they hired him. You know, if you hire Sam Raimi at this time, you want Sam Raimi. You know, his his camera crazy, you know, kinetic work. Um, exactly. Like, that's how you can tell it's a movie. Yeah, it's a little overboard, I think, with the zooms. The constant zoom, zoom, zoom. And he's doing a little bit of Sergio Leone kind of love letter. Uh, it is full-on spaghetti western. It's not like the um, the other westerns that we've had that were around this time were more classic western. You know, the the Unforgiven, Dance of the Wolves, Tombstone, stuff like that. A White Earp, and this one's just like kind of a kick-ass rock and roll, hip western is what I want to say. Oh, yeah, absolutely, especially with like some of the death and gunshot. Um, oh man, just like a whole chunk being taken out uh, like somebody's chest or head. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's over the top. It's cartoony. It's having a lot of fun. And I remember when this was coming out that it was supposed to be a summer film and they pulled back and it got dumped like in the middle of February. It still did well overseas, but it was never really a big hit. And it's one of those that kind of found an audience on video later. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I remember watching this on TV so many times when it, was coming, when it came out. Um, yeah, I feel... Uh, was it, wasn't it true that Sharon Stone, um, like, if anything, kind of got Leo DiCaprio into this movie to kind of draw on the teen audience because he was a bit of a heartthrob? Well, it was originally offered to Matt Damon. And oh. Sam Rockwell got really close. But yeah, she pushed for... Well, she pushed for Sam Raimi, and she pushed for Russell Crowe and Leonardo DiCaprio. And, you know, Sam Raimi had her back. You know, he believed in her choices. And and since she was executive producer on this, um, and she was red hot at this time. I mean, this is, she was just coming off of uh, Basic Instinct and everybody wanted to work with her. Even though most of her movies were flops here in America, she's massive uh, international star. So, you know, you can see why a Japanese company would want to come in and, and co-produce this with TriStar. Oh, yeah, no, that definitely does make sense, now knowing that. But, um, yeah, I will have to say, for Leo DiCaprio, like, you know, as a kid, I couldn't stand him to do the chin hard stuff. You know, I'm a guy, I was a little boy. I like dumb, you know, I like dumb shit. <laughs> so, but yeah, looking at him now, I'm like, yeah, no, I mean, even from when he was a kid, this kid, he was a good, you know, Leo DiCaprio, great actor. Yeah, I I had seen him, I want to say I saw him on Growing Pains first, and then right after yes. that, Critters 3, uh, he's the main kid in that, and then he did uh, Gilbert Grape, and I had seen that, and I thought he was a really interesting uh, actor, and I thought he had a lot of promise, and I he really breaks my heart in this. He's full of, you know, this brash, 
you know, uh, ego padding. But, you know, he you can see underneath that he's really like just, you know, he just wants his father's attention. He wants his respect and legitimacy. And he just won't fucking... Man, Gene Hackman is the bastard of all bastards in this fucking movie. Oh, God, yes. I know. I was like, oh, God, I could not wait for him to die. Somebody's got to take him down. We applauded. We we got up and applauded it in, in the theater when he when he finally ate it. Yes. Oh God. Say. Oh God. Thank here. Like I was really happy when I saw that. Uh, and let's not like uh, discount Russell Crowe either, because I mean his character was pretty badass. I mean, yeah. Well, it was. Of, like, it's, when I of redemption. when I saw him, I was like, "That's a star right there." And it took a little while, I think, for him to break out. Because what, like. Uh, uh, LA Confidential is like two and a half years after this and then there was still another two and a half years till Gladiator so it really took a while for him to really break out but I knew something was up with this guy immediately yeah I remember seeing him in uh, a Denzel Washington movie first before uh, Virtual I ended up seeing Gladiator yeah that's what it was yeah the uh, and this is a just killer like murderer's row of like that guy kind of person you know because we have uh the bartender's pat hingle was in all those old clint eastwood westerns and you know he was um uh, commissioner gordon in the batman movie uh the 89 batman um we have uh keith david who i absolutely adore uh absolutely same and 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 he's like the only guy there that's kind of a good guy you know that's it's not one of the main stars He's just competing because he's trying to take out the evil that is Gene Hackman. Yeah, he may have been he may have been paid to do so, but yeah, no, he you could tell he was trying to do it for a right cause. He knew how evil this guy was. Like you didn't even just look at him the way he owned the town and ran things. Yeah, like yeah, your people don't like you because you're taking too much from them. The uh, then we have Lance Henderson as Ace. Henderson. Uh, killer performance, totally different than anything that I've ever seen. He's not really sinister. He's a showboat. He's like an older version of Leonardo DiCaprio's character. Pretty much, yeah. There was a similarity. And you know, and, then, and just turning out like he's just full of shit. And he was good, but he wasn't great, like he said he was. Right. Yeah. And Gene Hackman put him in his place. The uh, the guy Scars, played by Mark Boone Jr. He looks like. A walking bag of scabs. He's just smells and looks and <laughs> sounds disgusting. The makeup department again, yeah, did a great job. Yeah, wasn't Mark? Wasn't he the guy who played Detective Flash in Batman Begins? Uh, yes, he was. I thought I recognized him. Um, Gosh, what else? There's there's plenty of movies I'd seen him in before. But yeah, he just was. A lot of these are just these character actors that just bounce from you know role to role or whatever, but never really. John Carpenter's Vampires. He was in that. Yes. Yeah. Um. I, there's a thing in this, and I think there's some footage that was cut from this. I know that Bruce Campbell's role was cut because he's in the uh, he's in the credits, but he never actually shows. And and he was uh, he was talking about it in his biography where he said that yeah, I did a scene, but I was fired on purpose because Sam Raimi wanted to show his strength among this you know much bigger cast than he's used to dealing with and some powerful <laughs> names. And he's like, well, it's, he's my best friend, so sure, I'll just pretend. <laughs> how you know it's a Sam Raimi movie when Bruce Campbell shows up I mean at, at the end of Darkman um, oh god of course all the Spider-Man films uh, did he even show up and drag me to hell I can't remember uh, you know I don't know I don't know if he shows up in that one he does show up in uh, Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness 
The uh, but there's another scene where I'm almost certain it had to have been cut out. There is a gentleman in there. His name is Kevin Conway, and and there's a scene where in the very beginning he's getting like a a skull dog thing kind of painted on his face. Do you remember this? It was very brief. Is that? Yeah, it's only in there for one scene where they're all meeting up, whatever, and someone's painting his face. And it's never shown again. And I feel like that was something that was like significant to his character. Because you don't just do that. And all of a sudden, it's just gone for the rest of the movie. He doesn't do that. Oh, God, no. Absolutely not. And, and, and Tobin Bell, who would go on to be Jigsaw in the Saw franchises, and this is one of the, I think, the first person that Sharon Stone kills. Yeah, I just think it's a it's a really fun movie. Just get used to a lot of like camera moving if you're very triggered by that kind of motion sickness stuff. You know, <laughs> it's it's weird though that this movie got beat by Billy Madison. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you spend thirty five million dollars, you got a big name like Sharon Stone and a and a standard, you know, like Gene Hackman, and and, and then all of a sudden you got this like eight million dollar scrappy little dorky film with. Uh, Adam Sandler, who's like, you know, it's his first breakout starring role, and that's the one that wins. Right. I'm not sure what it could have been. Like, it could have been marketing or like Western fatigue, because Westerns have been around for like 50 years. Yeah, and, and the Western always has a short stint where it's revived. You know, we, we've seen it happen like in '85 with Silverado, Pale Rider, and Russell's Rhapsody, and then it just faded back to TV again. The, the TV's always kept the Western alive this whole time. And then. Dance with, well, Young Guns, I would say, probably is the first of the new class. That was 88 and 90. And then Dance with the Wolves is the one that still, to this day, Dance with the Wolves is still the most successful Western ever made. Oh, man, yeah. I can't blame them. That, and then they had Unforgiven. So there was a longer boom of the Western after that, because then it lasted from, like, what, 88 to 95, I want to say, kind of died off. And then there was another one a few years later where we had Wild Wild West, Shanghai Noon, American Outlaws, and, and then, you know, those all just kind of like, you know, they had no lasting whatever, and just right back to TV again. It just happens every once in a while. You think, oh, well, a Lone Ranger, it's going to revive the Western. Nope. <laughs> uh, if you're talking about the Jerry uh, Bruckheimer Disney producer. Right, one, yeah, the Magnificent yeah. Seven no, remake. No. I mean, you'll, you'll get these big budget Westerns you think are going to revive it. And I think the problem is, is that they're putting so much money into the western there's no way it can really be successful i think western fans don't really need a hundred million dollar plus you know special effects star laden kind of thing you know they just want a good story no that would definitely mean well of course that definitely helps with like almost any movie i know a good story real character development you know something to really draw you in yeah but in spectacle well cowboy and indians too or cowboy and aliens you know spectacle doesn't necessarily sell to the western audience Heck, even the premise of that just made me laugh. I'm like, really? Cowboys just the <laughs> I saw that in the theater. <laughs> Where are we at? I'm for, I got lost. Okay, okay, fast forward. Uh, we're going on to Bad Boys now. Um, another one I saw in theaters. Uh, I almost want to say I saw this with Quick and the Dead because they're owned by the same company. Um, for the longest time, I didn't like the ending of it because Bruckheimer has a tendency to drag things out an extra step. Like, especially in Con Air, like, John Malkovich could have died, like, five times before the thing crushes his skull. And I feel like this at the end when Chucky Caro, Cario, whatever his name is, when he hits the wall, the car should have just blown up and pieces of it should have shot over the wall. 
But no, but then they drag it out. He gets out or whatever. And then they're like, no, shoot him. You're a good cop. I can't shoot him. I gotta shoot him. You know, whatever. And then he pulls a gun out of nowhere. I didn't like that. I know. Well, I mean, it. Well, it's Michael Bay, man. You can't expect anything. Yeah, you know, but Bayham, if it was re- like Bayham now, he wouldn't pull that. He would have him hit the wall. It would blow up and flip over the, you know, flip over that wall or whatever and land right behind <laughs> the other car. <laughs> started that whole franchise and again it was just really good uh, you know from here on I'm the crazy it, person that says part 3 is the best entry I, I don't think I've ever seen part it's 3 it's so yet. good it's in, it's in the voodoo you can watch it I'll definitely give it a watch but yeah no I like um, how again Martin Lawrence and Will Smith just like made it their own thing this is something that could flow with Michael Bay kind of like about fun a lot of edginess on like you know the whole plot and the heist those criminals like breaking into the vault of the police uh, lockup and stealing all those drugs yeah and then how the plot unfolds later on it got personal for Will Smith because an, an associate of his was murdered you know and then of course uh, Taya Leone fiery performance holy shit like knock it out of the park debut Oh, well, I mean, like, like, you know, as one of the main characters. I, f- I forget that she's even in a league of her own. Yeah, she's, she was one of the background players. She had a bit part. She was, like, I think one of the rival players. Okay. Yeah, but this is, like, her, like, debut as, like, hey, this is uh, going to be a hot new you know, actress or whatever. I, you know, I don't mean sexually, but I mean, like, as a talent. Yes. Yeah, the, yeah in that particular uh, context, yes. Um. And, yeah, no, she did knock it out of the park. Oh, God, she was just... <laughs> like, in the way her and uh, Martin Lawrence just bounced off each other. Yes, and, and she knows. She knows he's full of shit, and she just lets him drag it out. <laughs> did you know that yeah. this was originally set up for Dana Carvey and John Lovitz? <laughs> Holy shit. Yep, it was supposed to be a lot sillier, a lot like more wackiness or whatever, and and whatever reason it didn't come together, and they end up doing, I think part of the contract is they end up doing Trapped in Paradise for the same company. Um, I, I could be wrong about that one, but yeah, that, it was originally set up for those guys. It was going to be more like a wacky spoof, and then, you know, Jerry Bruckheimer got his hands on the script or whatever and saw the potential, and then, you know, got uh, Will Smith playing much older, I think, than he really was in a lot. I, it's hard to tell because he was still playing like a high school student on Fresh Prince. So it's it's hard. I know he was rapping back in like 86, 87, but he seems right. so super young. But they age him up a bit, make him seem like he's a real senior, like, you know, almost 30 you know, instead of like 22 or 24 or whatever he was at the time. Absolutely, yeah. That's the impression he gave. I'm like, okay, good. This is where his potential, potential in acting really does come in. I mean, yeah, you could take it back to Fresh Prince where he just had that breakdown after his dad abandoned him again. Yeah. Well, and he handles the action very well. Definitely. More so, more so than Martin Lawrence. Yeah. Well, Martin Lawrence has <laughs> always been kind of a goofball. He's severely out of shape in part three, and they, they talk about it like he can barely, like, run. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so, and this is Martin Lawrence's big, like, he had his show, of course, and he was in the first house party 
And he had a, a, a popular stand-up special at the time. But this is like, okay, so you're going to be a movie star now. And while Will Smith obviously broke much, much bigger than Martin, he had like 10 years there where he was really reliable as a star. You know, there's Blue Streak, uh, Big Mama's House. Um, one of my favorites is coming up in a couple years called Nothing to Lose with him and Tim Robbins. Well, we'll end up discussing when we get to 97. But yeah, but it just it got outshined by Will Smith because after this, Will Smith becomes Mr. Fourth of July. You know, he becomes an absolute A-lister. Biggest movies of the year is the expectation for, you know, the next 20 years. Absolutely, yeah. And honestly, I'm just glad he finally got his Oscar for uh, King Richard. Yeah, the one about that. I wish he hadn't slapped somebody at the Oscars so that that overrode. <laughs> There's worse things to cry about. Yeah, it's just like, oh, you could have saved this for some other time. But um, the, uh, the I mean, this is the debut of Michael Bay. I mean, you can see this is only a twenty, like twenty-three million dollar movie, but he makes it look so good because he just spent the last you know five years doing like the best music videos making them look amazing on a very small budget and the only thing the only thing that i don't like that he started well tony scott kind of started it and it feels like michael uh, bay is a little bit of a protege of his camera work but the constant zooming in and zooming out as car chases are going out i'm like you're already in a moving vehicle in a chase you don't need to pan in and out you're making me nauseous and then everybody copied that for years. Exactly. And let's not forget when he did the Transformers franchise. Yeah, but Ambulance is so fucking good. And this time he's like, okay, you know what? I am going to wow you, but I'm going to do it in a very smooth way by using drones. And a small scale kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Like Michael Bay, when it comes to stuff like Bad Boys, you know, Armageddon and The Rock, you know, his own thing. I'm like, okay, good. That's, you know, do you. But your idea, his ideas for Transformers, even the yeah. designs, looking back at them, <laughs> they seem fucking insane. But it also allowed him to make his best movies, Pain and Gain, and Thirteen Hours and Ambulance. So I mean, if you have to sell out, I guess, and make these massive movies, it's just I think he overstayed his welcome. He could have just done a couple, or just do the first three Transformers. Sticking around for four and five, it's like he just like too much. And too four, yeah. Oh, three, four, and five were also stretched out too. Like you know. As you mentioned, kind of like what he and Bruckheimer both have in common. However, uh, when it comes to uh, Pearl Harbor, I would say something, but Trent Parker saying that in uh, yeah, yeah. so we're fine on that. <laughs> All right, what is, what is our next film? Okay, our next film is, of course, as it was mentioned before, you know, it was what beat out uh, Quick of the Dead, Billy Madison. Like, this is, for me, if you haven't seen him on Saturday Night Live, this is where ridiculous, just fucking obnoxious Adam Sandler started I wish that he would make a movie this weird more often but little Nicky made so little money and cost so much that I think he's scared to do a weird little movie now I mean I I really like his dramatic work I think Uncut Gems is his best film yet um but I I just kind of miss the uh the complete insanity Billy Madison was like the Marx Brothers of our age where it was just like, there's no rules, just go with the nuttiness and get weird and dark. Oh, absolutely. Especially when he's like, uh, especially when he sees that, when he's drunk and he's just seeing that imaginary penguin starts cheesy. Yeah, that's so fucking film. weird, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, hands down, yeah. I'm like, 
of all the things to hallucinate and see during drinking, which, I mean, I don't know how, like, how much of a percentage that happens to people when they drink, but, like, of all the things to see, a fucking penguin. Yeah. <laughs> it's Nudie <laughs> Magazine Day. <laughs> <laughs> For the king of this era of just like being a dick. Oh yeah. Oh dude, if you see him in a. Uh... Oh gosh, what was I gonna say? Uh, the Handmaid's Tale. Oh god, he's fantastic. In oh that yeah, I haven't watched it. It seems too uh, realistic now, and I don't know if I can watch it. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, it, it's it's a oh my fucking god show. It's heavily dramatic. The. Um... Anyway. I remember the commercials for this. So I we were watching it that morning. We used to have like this. Uh, we used to have homeroom. Did you, did you have homeroom when you were in high school? Uh, homeroom. Uh, I believe so. Yes. Um. So you would meet up there for like twenty minutes. You get the news of the day, or whatever, and information about the school. And we used to watch this show called Channel One, and they had a commercial on there for Billy Madison. We all said that looks like the stupidest fucking thing we've ever seen in our lives. But then we found ourselves like kind of talking about it later, and then they kept airing this radio commercial on the alternative station, where it was just a big boisterous announcer. Uh, on Fridays, go see, and then you would hear Adam Sandler go Billy Madison. So every time we hear the name Billy Madison, I always think about how he's named Billy Madison. <laughs> it's so weird, and that is that is a weird way to say it. Like, Billy Madison. It's almost <laughs> like. Uh... It's almost like a male version of, um, oh god, Mama Fratelli, the Mama from the Train, why am I blinking on her name? Oh yeah, 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 I can't remember her name, Anne something. Anne Ramsey? Yes. Okay. <laughs> now you said it twice, just say it one more time, come on. Um, but, and, and then it was one of these things where people were talking about it a bunch over that summer, and we ended up watching it and thought it was okay, you know, there's some amusing stuff in there. But then it was in college. It just became a fucking phenomenon. And there were so many lines from this, like, Nudie Magazine Day. We would just yell at each other. Uh, uh, shampoo is better. Conditioner is better. No, you are. Whatever. Um, he's going to be a little soccer player. Stuff like that. So hot. What to touch the hiney? Oh, yeah. When he would just, like, absolutely simp over uh, Bridget, uh, Bridget Wilson. Uh, Bridget Mer- what was her name? She changed her name. She always had a... Yeah, it's, it is Bridget uh, Wilson. It's Bridget Wilson Sampras, I think. Yes, that is it. Much better here than in uh, Mortal Kombat where she's really stiff, and, and I just don't buy it. I mean, of course, it being Mortal Kombat, at the, and at the time, you know, video games weren't really taken seriously. No, no. Video game movies weren't taken seriously. Yeah, no. To us to be expected. Yeah, and I remember this was kind of a minor hit. I mean, it cost, why well, I said $8 million and made twenty-five. But he had already signed a deal for another picture uh, called Happy Gilmore. And I think that if, even if Billy Madison had been discovered and blew up on video, I don't think his career would have taken off the way it did if it hadn't, if he didn't have Happy Gilmore ready to go, which cost just like a two million more, but it made like 50 million and was massive on video. I don't know how his career would be because if you remember after this, Bulletproof comes out. 
and Bulletproof was kind of a little expensive, and it was a big, a big flop. Everybody hated it, and but it, those video sales just kept him going and got him Wedding Singer. Oh yeah, no, yeah, honestly, yeah, Bulletproof. That was the one with uh, David Wayans, right? Right. Oh, that expensive because everybody wanted to see him for his kind of uh, ridiculousness and over the top, you know, shenanigans like they they did see in the previous films. So I think him trying to be a little too serious. Just wasn't the right time. Yeah, it's so weird seeing uh, Adam Sandler in an action film. It just it didn't work for me. But um, we'll we'll probably get to that next uh, in the 1996 season. Um, but yeah, Billy Madison is a classic for a reason because it's it, it introduced a whole unique voice. And while he never made a movie this weird ever again, elements of it still for years would be picked up. Like this weird shit in, in fucking uh, Mr. Deeds that like and uh, Hubie Halloween has weird stuff in it that just like what. And, and I think that's what people really like and why he had such a strong fan following for so long. But it did start to wear out its welcome, and I think that's now why he's trying to make more, like, legit drama work. Yeah, because some of the stuff, like, again, just overly repetitive, and, like, he's not really giving that much of an effort. No, I mean, he even mentioned himself that he would just take scripts where he could just go on vacation. Yeah, he didn't want to do that. Oh, God, Zohan. Let's, oh, God, look at that I'm, I'm okay. With, I'm okay with Zohan, but I don't like the one where he has the uh, Jack and Jill. That's it. Jack and Jill is his rock oh, bottom. God. Yeah. Yeah. No. Anyway, on to the next movie. Yes. Okay. This one, of course, yeah. Growing up, Mel Brooks, absolutely loved him, and Leslie Nielsen as well from you know Naked Gun, Dracula, Dead, and Loving It. I'm gonna be the one that poops in the party a little bit. I don't think Leslie Nielsen is right for this role. Well, first off, he's too old. He's just too old for the role. They should have gone with someone. If you're doing a parody of most Dracula films, you're going to pick a younger guy. And the sad part is, I think someone who was perfect for it had just come off of another spoof that didn't make any money, so no one wanted to work with him, was Amaro DeSante. Oh, uh, okay. Oh. Well, I don't know. Well, honestly, when you look at Leslie Nielsen, he looks like he's always been old. Even when you go back to airplane. Yeah, true. He just had gray hair. <laughs> and I think, I think his style of comedy fits really well with the Zucker Brothers, which is more rapid-fire, uh, almost improv kind of uh, comedy, where Mel Brooks is kind of older-school television, like Catskills uh, 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 dad humor. And I don't know why... He's the only one that doesn't work for me because I think I think Steven Weber gets it 100% right. He's so fucking funny. I, I love, was just about to mention him, yes. I love Mel as uh, uh, oh, Van, Helsing. Van Helsing. Harvey Corman is top-notch with it. The girls are great. Just something about Leslie Nielsen, it doesn't work. His rhythm is different. And also, like I said, I just think he's just too old. Steve Weber, though, I have to go back to the part where he stakes Lucy. <laughs> Holy shit, his reaction is absolutely like, he just has that slow pause where he's getting the blood out of his eye, and then, and then Mel Brooks comes up to him and says, oh, not dead yet, just a little bit more. It's good enough, okay? <laughs> yeah, Steve Weber, I mean, oh my god, how many takes 
do you think they'd have to do? Oh God, I hope all they got that fake blood. Oh, I God, hope they stuck it to two. Right, because you'd have to hose that place down. You have to completely change his clothing. I love when he's about to put the stake in, and then Van Helsing says, "Wait, wait, wait, hold on," and then steps away from it. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, you're. He's like. You're right. It's a mess. We should have put those papers down. <laughs> she just got done eating. What did you expect? Yeah. Oh, no. And, oh, dude, this was also over the top and I absolutely love it. Peter fucking McNichol. Yeah. At first, <laughs> I, at first I couldn't figure out what he was going for comedically. It, it, but then the minute the bugs get introduced and he's so insanely over the top and Harvey Corman has to reel it in. Those two bouncing off each other is so perfect. I think Harvey Corman is kind of forgotten as one of the big comedy guys of the seventies, and and it's a kind of a shame yes. because he up till his dying day he was still top notch funny. Absolutely, even seeing him in the Flintstones prequel, uh, The Old Rock Vegas. You know, he also was a kazoo in the original cartoon. Yeah, yeah. And the Ditch the Bird in the first movie, and now he's Wilma's dad. In that, and you know. His one little liner about the pearl necklace. He's like, "It's like this belongs to your great great grandmother." In fact, they came right out of her shell. <laughs> little stuff like that. In I want to I want to say it was eighty nine or ninety. Mel Brooks produced a TV show with Harvey Corman, Cloris Leachman, and you probably don't know the name offhand. His name is Mark Blake Blankenship or Blankenfield or something like that. And he was Blinken in Robin Hood Men in Tights. Do you remember Blinken? Yeah. Okay. He was also in this movie, too. He was yes. the orderly. And they were in a TV show. It only lasted 13 episodes. It was called The Nut House. And at the time, I didn't think it was very funny because it didn't have a laugh track. And it was supposed to play like a, a half-hour movie about like this crazy uh, hotel. And, the, you know, they cemented their relationship there. And then, of course, Mark, Bl Mark Blankenship... I'm going to get it right. It's either Blankenship or Blankenfield. Was supposed to be the next big thing around 82 83 he was on a, a competing show with saturday Night live called fridays you've heard of that right yes because that's where larry david and uh, michael richards came from and but mark blinkenfield was the breakout star he was like their jim carrey for you know that era's in living color he got a couple movies they tanked horribly and his career was just done but thank God Mel Brooks, you know, kind of discovered him and, and, and gave him a few more, you know, roles to, you know, do uh, during that down period. And he was perfect as Lincoln. He was. There's, he so was a scene maker. There's a movie I want you to watch. It's in my voodoo. It's called Jekyll and Hyde Together Again. It's, it's very Mel Brooks-like. It's not as funny, but I really like his top-notch performance. But it was a flop, and it basically destroyed his career. But... It's in the voodoo, and I want you to check it out. It's from 82 or 83. Jekyll and Hyde together again. Yep. Uh, and he also took over for, uh, there was a TV sequel to The Jerk, and he took over for Steve Martin in the sequel. Yeah, no, I'll definitely have to look into it. All right, I so. I something about that when I was a kid. Yeah, I love the production value of Dracula Dead and Loving. That's the one thing you say about all of Mel Brooks's comedies is... Um, they are a little more expensive than a lot of the spoofs that are around, but they put the money into the sets because he's trying to replicate what you already experienced. He's not going cheap like those date movie, epic movie, that bullshit that destroyed the yeah, whole no. 
the whole the whole uh, genre. Spook. Yeah. I mean, he, his set pieces they look like old Hammer sets. Um, you know where it has that dual layer. It, it's clearly stage bound, but it also has that heavily layered look to make it look like there was at least some decent like set design. And I get... oh, excuse me. And of course he's Sorry, spoof- he, he's he's spoofing the original Dracula's, of course, and he's also spoofing uh, the Bram Stoker Dracula heavily. And I think most of those jokes actually work even now um maybe it's because i've seen bram stoker's dracula so many times i love it when he hands off his hair <laughs> can i take your hat <laughs> yeah the wig piece that is like definitely one of the most um memorable designs of dracula from that film yeah because angel ishioka the uh was graphic designer the one who designed the costumes oh yeah she'll go out there um, it was beautiful. It's not top tier Mel Brooks for me, and I think there's a reason why he quit after this. It was also a massive flop. But to be fair, uh, Christmas Day, 1995, I believe they released seven movies on the same day, and they all slaughtered each other. Oh, dang! So it was a frenzy of. Oh yeah, it was. It was like Tom and Huck. This sudden death cutthroat island waiting to exhale and there's another one in there somewhere i can't remember and only waiting oh. to exhale lasted oh shit yeah damn oh yeah. man that's bad i'm gonna look it up right now just to be but go ahead and uh anything else you want to say about this movie before we go i feel like you, you mentioned the hammer films yes i believe they mentioned that in the behind the scenes stuff and how they were inspired by that because after all uh, Christopher Lee in particular was one of the best interpretations of Dracula for the longest time. Yeah, he's my and, favorite Dracula, honestly. Yeah. I, I honestly, I won't disagree with you, for sure. I mean, maybe my favorite Dracula, but not my favorite Dracula movie. It was no, 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 Dracula. but... And I think, However, the problem, I think the problem with Christopher Lee is that he did it for too long. He did it for decades, but I mean, if that's the work that's being offered to you, that's the work that's being offered to you, but... I think by the time like you know the Hammer films were over with, and he started doing Spanish Draculas. I think people were like, "Okay, we're done." No, it's like, but hey, man, he—it's not like he worked elsewhere. I mean, he did a fantastic job as Saruman. He actually met J.R.R. Tolkien. Yeah, well, he's—he's he's he one of my also, favorite Bond villains of all time. Absolutely, dude, he's freaking great. And I think it was a uh, Fleming's cousin. That's true. Yeah, and okay, so here it is. So. Uh, the ones I didn't mention that came out on that day were Richard III with uh, Ian McKellen, Four Rooms, which is that Tarantino Rodriguez uh, anthology yes. film, uh, Grump Rear Old Men, Dracula oh Dead and Loving, Cutthroat Island, Balto. Okay, that's more than five movies. That's, that is wholesale that's slaughter. Uh, there's Nixon just two days before that. Holy shit, these people are insane. Yeah, they couldn't pick another date. Yeah, that's wild. Some of these movies should have been put... Like, uh, I remember that uh, Sudden Death was supposed to be a summer film, and they pushed it back to Christmas. They should have just waited till January or February, honestly. Yeah, what the hell? Sudden Death on Christmas? Like, yeah, that doesn't... Yeah, well, they were also no. going to release... Um, oh, doggone it. There was a horror film that was supposed to be released at that... Oh, uh, Dust Till Dawn was supposed to be on Christmas Day as well, and then... Oh! <laughs> yeah, so it's like, that would have just been nuts. Um, where are we at here? Okay, our final film is... It is Tommy Boy, another SNL classic. The only film to really capture the magic of Chris Farley. David Spade got more chances later. Obviously, Chris Farley didn't have a whole lot of opportunity because he died so young. But, um... I was listening to that Dana Carvey, uh, Fly on the Wall, the Dana Carvey and uh, David Spade podcast... 
where they talk about the fact that everybody told him to turn down Beverly Hills Ninja, that it was a terrible script, but they offered him, I think it was $11 million, more than he had ever seen in his life. And so he just took it, and they had planned on doing another Farley Spade sequel. I know Black Sheep isn't as good as Tommy Boy, but it's still pretty good. Yes, I had no problems with Black Sheep at all. <laughs> and I also wonder if maybe they were also like worried that it'd be like a Cheech and Chong situation where people didn't necessarily want to see them separately from each other. And Beverly Hills Ninja did make a decent amount of money, but you know he what he had one more in him after that. What was it? Uh, Almost Heroes. Yes, there was that, and he was originally doing Shrek. Yeah. Uh, before Mike Myers. I think Tommy Boy is the only one that captures the wackiness, uh, you know, the big, boisterous behavior, but also gave him so much likability and heart, and you just felt for his character the whole time. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I will say that Tommy Boy definitely had more heart than Black Sheep and, of course, Beverly Hills Ninja. Yeah. But, um, uh, yeah, like, you know, from the scene right after his dad died at the wedding, no less. Like, and he's just, like, sitting there, like, the only one standing there at the grave and then just walking home alone, going through the factory, just completely lost without him. Because, yeah, he even admits it. Like, his dad was the one who provided and handed everything to him. And, of course, that same, that statistic is, you know, brought up again with David Spade, you know, later in the movie after some, <laughs> after the car, after the car hood keeps flapping up and they almost crash. <laughs> The uh, that is an, that's an unforgettable scene. Like you can't help but uh, sing it like that if you ever hear that uh, Carpenter song ever again. Well, I'll, I'll, every time I listen to any of those like uh, I, songs, I think about every time they try to remember the words, uh, the words to uh, "It's the end of the world as we know it," and they're like, "It's the end of the world." Exactly. <laughs> road, road trip movies just work so well in the comedy genre. It's just one of those standards that was, you know, I guess, what's the first, like, road trip movie? Is it National Lampoon's Vacation? I can't think of one before that. I mean, there's the old, old, like, Bob Hope and Bing Crosby movies from the 40s. But I'm talking, like, of our generation. It seems like they were all kind of influenced by either Vacation or uh, planes, trains, and automobiles, which is both John Hughes. So we have to thank him for the road trip genre, basically. Yeah. Wasn't there an old Mickey Rooney, Sid Caesar movie? They're pretty much like driving along the California coast. Well, oh, there's gosh. well, there's it's a Mad 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 World. If that's one you're thinking. That. Okay. That's that's, that's a race. That's chaos. The only movies that are like that are like Scavenger oh. Hunt and Rat Race. I just got done watching oh. actually. I watched the the Mad 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 World just like uh, last week. Okay, so yeah, that's not a road trip. That wasn't a road trip movie. It's a, oh, it's more of like a pursuit kind of movie. Yeah, it's a chase movie. Yeah, it's a game. Um, this uh, is more like you know when you're on the road and you just have like these little mini adventures, and then you uh, you get to discover the characters as you go, like the way it was with Dumb and Dumber right before this. Yes. Oh God, yes. No, absolutely. But I mean, as far as this road trip, it's definitely all. You know, purpose is trying to save the factory and the jobs of all the people working there. Considering, yeah. you know, this is pretty much not Tommy, uh, Chris Farley's character. You know, this is pretty much Tommy's home and his life. You know, and he doesn't want to let it all go. Um, 
I think it's the first time that we saw Dan Aykroyd as a complete and utter douchebag. <laughs> he uh, can, I think you're right. I mean, we saw a couple times when he was on SNL because he's that guy that was always trying to like make things that weren't dangerous dangerous. Like, oh, look at this bag. He's suffocating on me or whatever. He's throwing this right down your throat. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, right. That's, that's way up. different oh, than selling a bag of glass, sir. <laughs> oh, no. Or better yet, like when he's uh, a child. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Um, but he really masters that weirdo vibe of like just this clueless midwestern elite you know uh, corporate guy um, and uh, oh Rob yes. Lowe Rob Lowe was originally supposed to be the role that David Spade was in but then Dan Aykroyd or uh, uh, Lauren Michaels realizes like oh no 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 we need to stick with what we saw originally in the office is that you know uh, Chris and David have so much fun bouncing off each other Especially, uh, let's not forget the, the many memorable things in this, like fat guy in a little coat, <laughs> of course, and housekeeping, <laughs> housekeeping, <laughs> housekeeping, and then of course like the road trip moves as they're singing along. Yeah, Who, then, who's your favorite little rascal? Is it Spanky? <laughs> Sinner. <laughs> I love how he's just giving him shit the entire time after he caught him. <laughs> Uh, was that a nighter? Were you on a walkie-talkie? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Again, it's, like, it's a wholesome classic. And, yeah. I mean, if anyone younger has not come across this movie yet, do it right now. Yeah, what, what's Anywhere a bummer... Streaming. What's a bummer is that David Spade got pigeonholed for so long as this kind of character. And he didn't get to star in movies like the way Chris Farley did. Everybody was knocking down their door to get Farley. But David Spade got, like, scraps after this because he does Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag, um, Senseless with one of the, I can't, Marlon Wayans. Um, well, there's a couple others. And then he ended up going back to TV, Just Shoot Me, playing the same character again. And it took forever for him to break out of that. I don't even remember when it was. Uh... Because I know he's still... Roberts? Probably, yeah. I was going to say, wait, which one is the redneck? The Joe Dirt. The Joe Dirt. Because J- Dickie Roberts is two years after Joe Dirt. Joe Dirt is basically, I think, where we kind of changed what our perception of him was. And they gave him a lot more heart. Oh, absolutely, yes. Yeah, because most of the time you just kind of want to smack him across the face. Yeah, because <laughs> well, even in Lost and Found, the one that came out in 99, two years before Joe Dirt, they tried to give him his own starring role and I like it, but it's not anywhere nearly as good as the movies after that because, you know, Farley's gone, and they tried teaming him up with Artie Lang, and he's just like a low-budget version of Chris Farley. It, it just doesn't work. Right. No, of course not. And, yeah, David Spade, like, on his own, yeah, no. Again, he always he, he always goes back to being that, like, kind of obnoxious little asshole, smartass. Now, in the last couple of years have been different, though, because he's been doing those Netflix movies for Sandler. Like, the one where it's, like, uh, he teams up with Sandler, who's, like, a spy or something like that, and he's just a nebbish little dork. And then there's one where he's a terrible dad. It's, it's a little bit Joe Dirty. Um, but there's one, The Wrong Missy, I think is his best movie, his best role, and he doesn't play anything like he normally does. Have you seen this one? No, I, I haven't come across it yet. I've oh. seen the trailers. Oh, yeah, and there was himself in Grown Up. Yeah, it's, and there was himself as Grown Ups. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, he does have a hard time breaking out of that smarmy. And everybody said when I was growing up that I reminded them of David Spade. I had that <laughs> I, I, seriously the way that I was snarky, and, and but I also had like a lot of Jim Carrey in me too, and Steve Martin. 
But when it came down to like wise ass one liners and really snappy comebacks, I was David Spade all the way. Oh god. And he was a king of one liners and yeah. I you know. <laughs> wasn't exactly the nicest person, so let's just say that. Uh, uh the damage that Hollywood Minute with David Spade did to me. <laughs> oh man. I think that's the end of our episode. So the next one, we're going to go heavier into adventure and drama. We only have one comedy, and that's Friday. Then we have Congo, Cutthroat Island, Apollo 13, and First Night. Okay, First Night. Give me a little rundown on that one. That's uh, the King Arthur movie with Sean Connery and Richard Gere. Oh, right. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, so I, we're, we're going out of the comedy comfort zone for a little bit and trying to get some more uh, adventure stuff. Because, you know, over the years that we've done this, starting at 1980 to 85, or 95, you and I have you and I uh, have focused mostly on the comedy and I'll do action and horror and stuff like that with other people. And I kind of want to mix it up. I think uh, some people are getting bored. being. It's almost like being typecast as a podcaster. Right, <laughs> right. Like, hey, man, we've got range, too. We can talk about other stuff. Yeah. I can cry at movies. I don't <laughs> like to, but I can. <laughs> well, we're not going to watch Dead Man Walking or anything like that or Sense and Sensibility, but yeah, we're going to oh, expand, our, we're gonna expand uh, our horizons a little bit. I don't know if I can go through that again. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, okay, in 93, <laughs> we both recognize that Schindler's List is one of the greatest movies ever made, and it's an Oscar winner for a reason, but I don't want to talk about it. It's too traumatic. Oh, absolutely not. Heck, to the point where, you know, even Spielberg had to get, you know, Rob Williams to come and cheer up the casting crew because Lincoln in that movie was absolutely depressing. Which it is just, ironic so. because years later that uh, Rob Williams would do Jacob the Liar, which kind of the same vein. Yikes. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. All right. So, you know where to find us. There's nothing else to say. Jacob, send us out. Alright, everybody, be excellent to each other. Namaste, good luck. And party on, dudes! I stepped on your line, sorry. No worries, I thought it took too long to say it anyway. I stretched it out.